This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling issues facing Ireland and the world. And our, our experts each week will offer insight, spark a little bit of curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now I'm joined on the line by Andreas Hopner, who is the Professor of Operational Risk, Banking and Finance here at UCD Business School. He's also on the EU's Expert Technical Group on Sustainable Finance. Thank you very much for joining us, Andreas. You're somebody who's been studying and researching for many years bigger issues than even pandemics. You've been looking at things like the future of the planet, what our finance system will look like in 5, 10, 15 years, is our current economic model sustainable at all? And can it coexist alongside the natural world, the biosphere and the climate world? Is it compatible and so on? These are the kind of things you've been looking at. How have you been struck by what the pandemic has done to the model so far? We've obviously got an economy in a coma state, really, at closures, companies furloughing workers and so on. The system under pressure, the healthcare system, the energy system, a lot of things, the supply chains, they've already come under renewed pressure from this pandemic. What do you sort of read into that in the context of bigger challenges that might lie ahead? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, certainly, these are entirely unprecedented times. Uh, we never had such a global pandemic. A lot of businesses that have focused on efficiency rather than effectiveness or so short-term efficiency, doing the things uh, with the least possible cash in the bank, doing the things with the shortest times, just just-in-time production. Now they're very much caught out. And it shows that effectiveness, doing the right things, is actually more important than efficiency, doing the things right. That, I would say, applies to business in general, because efficiency can give you a few percentage of more return, but it doesn't ensure that you're actually moving in the right direction. Ignoring effectiveness questions is very much exposing you to huge risk of structural break like pandemics. So in that sense, when you're looking at which businesses are now in danger, it's those businesses that weren't set up properly digital. It's those businesses that didn't have long-term relationships or long-term contracts. It's those businesses that were pretty much in short-term business. It's like short-term business here, short-term business there, um, no long-term contracts. That's where um, in that type of sectors, uh, there is largely the challenge. And then there are uh, some exceptions to that, but predominantly you can say short-term businesses have come under enormous pressure because COVID-19 represents an enormous short-term sleeping state, if you want to, or pausing uh, of the global economy. And beyond that, COVID-19 is likely to represent for millions, if not billions of people on the planet, a rethinking about topics such as hygiene, the importance of health, the importance of long-term, the importance of being effective rather than efficient. So I think it will uh, help us to rethink what really matters. And that is not the short-term pursuit of uh, potentially 1% or 2% more profit in accounting books, which in most cases, the financial market doesn't value anyway. Yeah? Financial market values long-term stable cash flows. It doesn't value short-term profits uh, that much. So, so let's unpack that a little bit. It's fascinating insight there. In terms of put your, 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 your feet into the shoes of a CEO of a big listed quoted company who is 
tied up and hooked up to the quarterly reporting cycle and so on. This COVID-19 eventually peaks. Eventually we get out of it at some stage. Nobody really knows, even the medical establishment. When we get back to normality or something approaching to it, do you think companies will still, uh, all the things you're taking are, are said are correct, but will companies be able to adopt that more long-term thinking? Or are they tied into a different discipline that means they can't really do the things that you're talking about, whether they want to or not, is another matter? Companies per se can be very long-term and quite often that's the best thing to their shareholder value, to be long-term focused, to see changes in society, to prepare innovative products. That's the if you want, so the view of companies. The challenge comes in here with executives. And executives, simplistically speaking, have two choices. They can behave like a mercenary or they can behave like a share owner. And in fact, uh, there is data from a range of companies that will tell you if the CEO owns more than five years annual pay in shares. So a CEO that owns more than five years annual pay in shares happens to be someone that thinks more of a share owner on average rather than a mercenary. If the CEO doesn't own many shares and most of the financial compensation comes from the annual pay, in particular the options, then they are likely to act like a mercenary. And so in essence, we, we looked at this and companies are kind of split half-half and half-company CEOs own more than five years annual pay in shares because maybe they've been the entrepreneur, maybe they bought in the company significantly. If uh, CEOs act like share owners, they have significantly less actual risk, so downside risk. I'm not speaking about deviation, I'm speaking about downside risk, than companies where the CEOs are uh, rewarded like mercenaries. They're rewarded with annual pay packages. They're not, the long-term exposure is not that high. So in many ways, it depends on uh, which executives are you speaking about? What are the skills of these executives? Have these executives scientific skills? Uh, if yes, that's good. But then the question is, how long ago have they left scientific departments and universities? Um, and then the question is, how are they compensated? So if... CEOs are compensated purely based on uh, short-term um, share price movements, then obviously they'll be looking for quarterly reporting. They may be trying to buy back their shares to give some implicit demand for the shares and thereby maybe boost the price a bit, especially if that's not fully accounted for in the option. So it that actually gives them personally more money. So that's the questions one has to raise. I mean, nowadays... Uh, big oil and gas companies are borrowing money to pay dividends to shareholders to make their share price look good. That tells you that in this particular case, uh, the CEOs are likely compensated more like mercenaries than share owners. And I think that shareholders, especially the majority shareholders or the powerful block shareholders, will have to really think, do I want mercenaries running a company for me or do I want share owners running a company for me? And so that topic, I think, has to come up. Um, and so can executives uh, think about the long term? Absolutely, they can. Uh, will they all do that? It's likely going to depend a lot on how they're compensated, how the management team is compensated, and also if their skills are long-term skills. If your executives come from, a, from more of a selling type background, then in many industries, selling is a pretty short-term activity. So skill sets, of course, matter as well. Executives are less likely to focus on something which doesn't match their own skill set. Well, that, that was one of the points I was going to bring up is, are shareholders engaged enough in any of this 
to drive the, some of the changes that you're talking about or, or, or change the way companies operate, the direction of them. In other words, a lot of shares are held, and I, I know lot, I'm not quantifying it, there's all the figures in front of me, but a lot of shares are held on a short-term basis. A lot of them are driven by machine learning, algorithms, they might be tracking an index, etc. So how active are shareholders in the main? Obviously, there are activist shareholders. There are people governed by ESG principles and so on. We know that, but a lot of them aren't. So how do, do you think that's going to change? Do you think that's actually a problem in the first place, that shareholders don't ultimately pay enough attention to these issues that you're talking about? The biggest block shareholders tend to pay a lot of attention. And it's, it's important to say that so-called high-frequency traders, they trade a lot of volume, but they own a very little of the money they trade. And they are not relevant when it comes to controlling companies because their actual ownership of companies is minimal. So the, the, the biggest shareholders, if you take the biggest 10, 20, 30 shareholders of the companies, in most cases, especially those focusing on ESG, they'll be very engaged, but the other ones will also be engaged because simply when you're a large shareholder, you can't sell your shares overnight. You can't even sell them in a week without a negative price impact. So if you're a very large shareholder, you're like landlords. If you don't engage, there's a huge risk to the value of your asset huh? because it's something that you can't just quickly sell. So they are engaged. The problem, again, comes with the executives because the executives manage the annual general meetings. The executives are the ones that aim to guide the voting. And for shareholders to really win against the executives, they have to get more than 50% at the annual general meeting, which means they need a lot of coordination and they also need to make sure that there is no uh, tactical tricks played against them. Uh, colleagues from the Stockholm School of Economics analyzed the executives' the votes at the AGMs, and they looked at how many times a vote is accepted, uh, how many times a vote is won by shareholders against management with 1% versus how many times management wins uh, against shareholders with a 1% margin. And they find that management wins 75% more against shareholders with a 1% margin than vice versa. So AGMs are not democratic elections as we see them in society. There's all range of rules that are far away from a democratic state. And so shareholders are doing more these days than they've ever done before. They are voting in, in, in millions, in billions uh, for the long term. But quite often, the corporate governance problem that the executives are trying to take too much power uh, remains. So uh, it all, um, as we discussed, starts with the executive team. And if the executive team is focusing on the long term value for the shareholder, which as soon as it's long-term is pretty much also at least stability for society, if not societal value, or if the executive team is really only focusing on their own pay package and how much rent they can extract from the firm. So the, the challenge here is to look at what is the structure of the executive team and are they showing decent behavior or are they trying to even get rid of shareholder power as you currently see in the U.S., where corporate lobby associations are lobbying the SEC to curtail shareholder power. And looking at COVID-19, we get a, a little bit of an early test run of, of some of the ideas that you're talking about. We've seen this week Tesco, one of the largest retailers in Europe, paying a dividend to shareholders despite the presence of COVID-19. So there's one example. So do you see in the current episode good evidence of how the changing or uh, the thinking is going to change or do you see bad evidence or is it is it too early to say what this particular episode tells us about corporate behavior in the context of some of the ideas you're talking about 
we can already say a certain number of old ideas that don't work anymore. So the idea that financial accounting itself describes the health of the company, I think by now is borderline ridiculous because clearly COVID-19 is not on financial accounts. A pandemic doesn't show up on financial accounts. And despite financial accounting trying to integrate intangible information for decades, it has failed because it was never willing to statistically become more complex than plus, minus, multiply, and divide. It hasn't done any regressions. It hasn't done any estimation. So in essence, uh, those that only focus on financial accounts rather than use key performance indicators, use data science to manage their company, they naturally now reflect, can these risks be captured in other systems and how important are financial accounts actually, especially all the numbers that the company fully controls and thereby can massage anyway. So that's one of the ideas I think that um, will really suffer after COVID-19 for anyone thinking reasonable um, and talking honestly. The next idea I think that will suffer is the idea of economic efficiency. Effectiveness is doing the right things. Efficiency is doing the things right. Often people are very narrow-minded looking for economic efficiencies when they're completely missing um, the forest for the trees and are not really looking at effectiveness questions. So I think oh. people will rethink about that. So I was going to say, in terms of managerial style, which is, is something I was hoping to talk a little bit about, we, and how power is exercised in companies and in society and in the political system. Something that has really struck me, and, and maybe it's not translatable from the government world into the business world, but just, just hear me out on it, is countries with very centralized power structures, like China, for example, and like Ireland in the sense that we don't have a federal structure, we just have very much central government operates and, and allocates resources accordingly, you see in the states where they do have that federal structure and there's governors competing with each other, it's hard to get resources to the most hard hit places quickly. Again, does that translate into companies whereby having smaller boards, having, yes, strong leaders, centers of authority, not necessarily dispersing that power for further and more widely, does that, does that model, first of all, do you accept that thesis that that is better in a crisis? And secondly, if it is, does that contradict the idea that companies you know, should cede power, should give and divide it up among a, a greater share of stakeholders? Is, is, there, is there a contradiction there? Or do you think they're just different things and we're comparing different things? I don't think that the example works because, for instance, Germany, who is very much not, is very much decentralized. All the states make their own rules. Effectively, all the states have their own lockdown rules in Germany, uh, has one of the best, uh, lowest death rates per capita of any country. So I don't think it's about decentralization. And in fact, in the US, it's just a federal government not making a central bargaining agent as the states are demanding. So there's easy solutions to this if someone wanted to help the states um, in this particular challenge. I think when you're looking at which countries were successful in responding to the crisis, the question is how many scientists are among the top decision makers. So when you're looking at those people in the UK, for instance, that uh, championed the herd immunity, neither Johnson nor Cummings uh, nor Hancock uh, are scientists by background. We in Ireland have the enormous advantage that our number one leader actually is a doctor. Correct. In Germany, <laughs> the number one leader is a PhD in chemistry. Correct. In France, the Minister of Health is a, is a healthcare scientist. So the first simple question that people should ask themselves is, does it make sense for a lawyer or anybody who is not a healthcare professional to become the Minister of Health? 
Can they really add value there? And should they make the decisions just because they happen to be a politician of a powerful party? Right. In most cases, the Minister of Health is a portfolio allocated to someone who doesn't get elected into that portfolio uh, by the person that got elected by the country. So maybe we should actually rethink if we should only elect the prime minister, maybe we should also elect the chancellor and the UK setting the finance minister, the health minister. Maybe all the most important ministers should be independently elected based on the expertise for that particular role. It does make sense that the prime person in the country doesn't have to have any background. You don't want to favor one background over another one. But when you're having a minister of health, not being actually a medic or some healthcare expertise uh, individual. Um, and the only position in most countries that always has an individual with the right training is the Minister of Justice because there's so many lawyers in politics. Um, uh, that, I think, is a central question to ask. My own response to that would be yes, but, but in the sense that if the minister is being given a mandate to be very reformist, and regulating a particular sector for the first time or, or tightening the regulation around that sector. Do you want necessarily teachers regulating teachers? Do you want doctors regulating doctors? Can they become captured by the own industry that they spring from originally? That's the only question I would ask. And, and that's a viable question. And that's why my proposal was not necessary to mandate that they have to have expertise. But my proposal was to not let the uh, PM decide this, but let the country decide it. I don't see why central positions like Minister of Health, Minister of Finance, um, uh, Foreign Minister, Minister of Interior, um, and maybe two or three other portfolios, why they shouldn't be elected the same day we're electing the Prime Minister. And then people could run for this, even independent people could run for this. And we may have a Minister of Finance that's an independent person that really takes care of our money. It's and very much a Democrat. So, so I'm very much a Democrat, so I, I do think that society should decide this. So if society in a given year decided to put a reality TV star into the Minister of Health portfolio, well, then society decided that and the consequences <laughs> they will have to be at. Could I ask you a little bit about, just to broaden the conversation, I, I hear what you're saying about the politics and how we elect people is definitely going to come under some review in the next few years, I, I think that the current system has a number of frailties in it, to put it mildly. But can I make something, a, a sort of a wider point, which is about what is going to happen after COVID-19? Climate change is, it's not in the media. It's not currently making a lot of noise. The pandemic has moved to the front. It's front of mind for members of the public in, in large measure all across the continent, now moving into Africa and Latin America as well as, as a condition. So what does this mean when we come five years, 10 years, if we even have that much time to tackle climate change? I know Earth Day is coming up later this month, for example. Do you take optimism, which is on one side, which is the, the social collectivism, the social activism, the coming together, that sort of civic pride that people have taken in doing, helping their neighbor, helping their friend, helping their colleague? Do you take positivity from that in terms of tackling climate change? Or do you actually have a negative reaction to what you're seeing in the sense of, some of the systems we have have been shown to be very threadbare, very weak. Uh, supply chains uh, come to mind, the healthcare system itself in terms of ICU beds, drugs, obviously, vaccines and so on. So do you take a positive energy or do you take a negative energy from the way the world has tried to address this pandemic? Um, I'll take a positive energy, but if I may, I come back just to that one point on scientific expertise in the highest uh, positions in government. Okay. One of the remarkable things where I think in the Irish case, um, uh, the, the, the three leading politicians have done extremely well, and that's why the suggestions were there to leave them in power regardless just for the crisis, is that you need to have in-depth expertise to understand 
by late February or early March that the key number here is not the cases. The key number is your ICU beds. Because when the global financial crisis was about the liquidity between banks collapsing, here we're talking about the ICU uh, function collapsing. So the worst case we could arrive at is that we basically have no ICU capacity anymore and anyone with a heart attack would have a very low chance of survival simply because there's no ICU because everything is clocked up by COVID-19 and every doctor and nurse is completely overworked. And so the remarkable thing that I think the Irish response has done in my reading, at least at this stage, extremely well is, first of all, up the ICU beds from about 500 to 800 with, with the private hospital deal to 1,000 and then constantly focusing on that number. So every evening, the only number that interests me in Ireland is the number of ICU beds occupied by COVID. And at this stage, we're still under less than 50%, and we're hopefully going to peak this week or next week. So we may have been under ICU capacity all the time, but that is only because our leaders focused on that most important number all the time and didn't talk about herd immunity or just talked about case rates or doubling case rates. They focused on the ICU bed number, and that is the critical number in, in COVID-19. And managing that number uh, will hopefully spare us uh, much of the pain that the other countries will be um, uh, going through. And so that's why it's so essential that in top-level government, there is scientific expertise uh, on the aspect we're dealing with. And, and I think coming out of COVID-19, um, we, we're flattening a curve here. Now, we all know the logic of flattening curves. Most of us didn't know that before. In the climate change case, it's the same thing. We need to flatten the curve. We really have to flatten the curve of the impact that extreme temperatures will have on us. The curve is rising. The temperature curve is rising until we get to net zero, which we're hoping to get to by 2050. So net zero is the point where our greenhouse gas emissions are basically offset entirely by our natural things or technological means. And so we need to flatten that curve. Otherwise, um, uh, drastic events, uh, or natural events, floods, hurricanes, diseases, migrations, uh, they will occur much more often. And at some point, they will completely overload our systems and uh, get us into, into very uh, weak states as regions, as countries, as planet. The, the thing that I would... Um, I just focus in on is the difference between doing something quickly and doing something more long term. So the politicians at the moment, virtually all of them, maybe President Trump accepted, but most Western politicians accept the danger looming from climate change. Certainly in Ireland, they do. Certainly in the UK, they do. Now, what they're doing about that, we can have a long discussion about. But isn't the debate not so much about what's happening but it's about what we should do and the timetable for, for making the changes that we need to make. Isn't that where the debate is? Apart from the very extreme climate change deniers who are a very small band and seem to be, to be getting smaller every day, things like Earth Day later this month, for example, you know, most people will be fully, fulsomely in agreement with looking at these issues. But isn't the debate about how quickly we take, say, for example, petrol-driven cars off the road and how quickly we replace them, or do we replace them at all with electric vehicles? So isn't the debate not really about climate change and what it will do or not do? Isn't it more about how quickly do we need to transition? Isn't that where the contest is all about? We, we know the speed. So the IPCC tells us we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 7% year on year. So when you think about that as a private individual, and I used to say that last year, and I followed that last year, this is important in this context, it effectively means that you need to cut one in 14 flights. So if you are a private individual involved in business, 
uh, and you may be flying once a month, maybe twice a month, then it means that one, maybe two flights a year you don't take. Think about that conference that you went to that really wasn't that interesting, um, that you could have done digital or you couldn't have, you could have spared yourself the time and got some deadline done in the office. So in essence, as individuals, we need to cut one in 14 flights. We need to cut one in 14 drives to the supermarket, maybe take the bicycle, maybe walk, maybe take the bus. So 7% reduction is what we need to achieve. 7% is equivalent to setting yourself as an individual on a diet. You think you want to lose 5 to 10 kg, so you're trying to lose a half a kg or so every uh, couple of weeks or every week. And so you put yourself on a, on a reasonable diet um, and move on. We know that that's the speed we need to get to. So if we ask ourselves as individuals, how can we live a climate responsible life? Then it is whatever greenhouse gas emissions we think we consumed last year, and you can footprint that, but as an easy heuristic, you can take your uh, journeys with a car, like with a fossil fuel car or um, with planes, and you can try to drop one in seven. And uh, sorry, one in 14, 7% reduction, one in 14. So that's, I think, a fair thing to do. And I hope that more and more people catch up on that idea that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 7% year on year. So we should do that with our own consumption as well. But most importantly, we need to um, address the companies that are causing this, which are those companies that get the greenhouse gases out of the earth. Because conceptually speaking, in Ireland, we can do a great lifestyle, but if the companies are still getting the actual greenhouse gas uh, resources out of the ground, so digging the coal, drilling the oil at the same speed and just selling it to Africa instead for the planet, it's the same impact. So the companies need to decline their production uh, by at least 7% year on year, or ideally divest the fossil fuel production and invest in renewables instead. And what do you what do you say to the contention that this these changes? While you you mentioned the seven percent figure, which I have to say is is a genius way of looking at it. It makes it sound a lot less painful than than some of us have been told. But but more than that, what do you say to people who say the household budget, the income stream available to the typical household, is going to take some damage from having to do some of these measures and people who can least afford it are in the most vulnerable position if they have to make some of the changes in terms of their heating systems and so on. How do you counter that argument, which I hear a lot in the debate? No, I, I mean, to me, that's just an argument from lobbyists that are paid for saying that. Um, so if a household takes 7% less flights, uh, that's certainly good for the budget. Um, if a household takes 7% less drives, that's good for the budget. Um, so the, the main things that a household can do as an individual in the variable things are good for your budget, not bad for your budget. Um, what, about, what about if they're burning coal, or sorry, um, oil, gas as their main heating source and have to take it out and replace it with a whole new system? Well, it, it, in, in my view, that would be for the landlord rather than for the household, especially when you look at the poorest. So the, the actual infrastructure they live in or the car they have are givens, right? I'm not saying that every household should buy an electric car. Obviously, that's, that's not the demand of everybody. If they can get a used car, uh, electric or hybrid rather than um, fossil fuel, uh, great. But if they can't, if people just reduce 7% on what they do as a variable rather than heavy investments, this is already fantastic. And to me, to be honest, this is absolutely good enough. 
And yes. the key thing is to effectively use 7% of your fossil fuel consumption. And I'm talking about the variable things, things where you can easily cut out one in 14 trips. And does and Andreas, does, does offsetting, is that part of that? Or would you encourage people in household context to do some carbon offsetting? So, so in the handbook uh, of climate transition investing from the EU expert group, we're basically saying people should try to reduce um, first and then in 10 or 15 years when, when there's hard to reduce further, then hopefully the offsetting techniques are better. At this stage, the offsetting isn't necessarily particularly good. As Greta Thunberg rightfully says, if you grow a tree, but uh, Bolsonaro allows massive uh, logging in the Amazon area, then it's all counter. So, so I think we should start by just reducing our own greenhouse gas emissions 7% year on year. Um, and year on year in the COVID-19 context means that you reduce it 7% this year and then next year you use it 7% compared to 2019 because, of course, many people will reduce it now way more than 7% due to the lockdown. Um, yes. uh, but so, so think of what you did in 2019 and take out uh, one in 14 flights this year and another one in 14 flights next year and a third one in, in uh, 2022. And, and that very much helps your budget. Huh? So... Um, offsetting wouldn't help your budget because they had to pay someone for it. So I don't think that you need to necessarily pay anybody. Uh, I don't think you need to fall for marketing claims and, and buy the greener product unless you're convinced it's authentic. There's a lot of greenwashing out there as well. Uh, and we have a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland looking exactly into determining greenwashing. What I think people can do is simply reduce their own uh, greenhouse gas emissions 7%, and that's particularly your drives and your flights. And uh, you realize now, you know, uh, taking one or 14 trips less um, and maybe doing a, a digital conference with Zoom or with uh, Google Hangout or, or some tool that is freely available to people um, is, is also a nice thing to do. And so in that sense, we all learn to respect our houses and homes and surrounding areas more. I'm exploring every little road I can find within two kilometers around my house. And so... I think people should reduce 7% and then that's good for the budgets um, and that's good for the planet. Uh, and that's people, most of us will have done diets at some point in our life. And so it's the same thing as being disciplined, not eating too much chocolate, not drinking too much beer, not having too many greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, well, it's a good way to look at it. It's something we're all going to need to do anyway after the lockdown because I think uh, chocolate and wine sales are becoming <laughs> becoming a national problem at the moment, certainly in my household, I must admit. But I, I think it's a nice analogy and I think it makes it the opponents of climate change, I suppose they have a vested interest in making people be paralyzed and think the change needed is so impossible and so far-reaching that it'll never be able for the average household to make it. Um, and I think they use that then as a way to hold back action. So I think you're right in putting it in it and repurposing the whole message as, as, as a diet. I think it works very nicely. Andreas, it's been great to talk to you. We've gone through politics. We've talked a little bit about the environment, sustainability. Earth Day, as I said, will put a focus on a lot of this stuff. Good luck with your um, next few weeks. And good luck with the work you're doing in the EU on the whole area of sustainability. And thank you for joining us on Business Impact today. 